The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Well, well, well. I didn't think you were coming. I told you we were coming. I'm just playing. And look at this little man. Ruby Fruit. How are you doing, big man? Hungry? You come to the right place. Cousin Julie been fixing food all day. This is my friend Isaac. Gilroy. All my friends call me Gilly. Any friend of Cleopatra is a friend of mine. I didn't know there'd be accents. Excuse me? Hey everyone, welcome back to Represent. And as you probably can tell, I am not Aisha Harris, your host, but Verlyn Williams, your producer. Aisha is doing her thing on a last-minute reporting trip, so I am here to present today's segments. In a bit, we're going to bring you a conversation Aisha had with Janixa Bravo, the up-and-coming filmmaker known for her off-kilter storytelling in her debut feature, Lemon, which opens up in limited release this weekend. But first, after joining us last week to discuss the indie doc Who Streets, Jamel Bowie returns. This time, he and Aisha discuss a film depicting injustice to black Americans in a very different way. Catherine Brigelow's much-criticized Detroit. Check it out. Well, I am right now reporting uh, out of state for uh, another piece I'm working on at Slate, which is why I sound a little funny. I am on the phone. Verilyn is back in Brooklyn. She is recording this. And we also have Jamel, who is down in D.C. Uh, welcome back to the show, Jamel. Thank you for having me. Yeah, this makes two weeks in a row now, because last week we talked about Who's Streets. And this week we are going to be talking about a subject matter that is just as depressing, I think, um, but is set a little bit further in the past. It is the movie Detroit, which uh, was directed by Catherine Bigelow and was written the screenplay with her frequent collaborator, Mark Bull. And I mean, there's, a lot has been said about it already. And I've even said some stuff. I was on Pop Culture Happy Hour a couple of weeks ago talking about it. But I do think that there is still a conversation to be had about this, especially, I mean, just in light of everything that's happening in Charlottesville right now um, and just everything that seems to be happening throughout this entire presidency. And this movie was coincided, time to coincide with the 50th anniversary of the Detroit riots. And just as a quick, in case people haven't been paying attention or they're not aware, the Detroit movie starts with the Detroit riots and it kind of focuses for the most part about 40 minutes, 40 minutes to maybe an hour. It felt like a very long time on the Algiers motel incident, which is a very uh, heavily disputed uh, incident that occurred in the midst of the Detroit riots where three young black teenagers, black male teenagers were killed 
in this annexed building of the Algiers Motel. Uh, there were lots of different uh, law enforcement there of all sorts, uh, Detroit, Detroit PD. There was also uh, National Guard was there, some state troopers were there. And everyone has a different account of what happened. Several other people who survived the night, black people, black men, and two white women who were in the building were tortured, allegedly, for hours. And so Catherine Bigelow and, and Mark Bull focus on that incident specifically. And a lot of people have had a lot of thoughts about this movie and whether or not they should have been able to tell this story, whether or not they told this story correctly. Uh, there was one piece in the Huffington Post recently that was written by three academic professors, Jean uh, Theo Harris, uh, Say Bergen, and Mary Phillips, where at the end of their piece, after making their case for why this movie is so wrong, uh, they say, quote, if you want to see something that takes seriously the issue of police brutality against black people or the actual history of Detroit, don't see this movie. So, Janelle, you've seen the movie, obviously, I've seen the movie. Would you recommend this movie to people you care about absolutely not um i i gotta be honest uh honest for the sake of full disclosure i got through about 105 minutes of the movie and then i left the theater i had the same uh impulse as you did although i did not leave the theater uh what at what point did you wind up leaving i ended up leaving at the point where the last victim was killed unceremoniously on screen um and specifically, I'll tell you the exact moment when I got up. It was he, uh, the sadistic police officer shot him twice off screen. And then it cuts back to that room and you hear him put two more bullets into the body. And at that point, which uh, by this, you know, by this point in the movie, I had basically watched several of these unceremonious deaths of characters who aren't weren't really even characters who seem to just exist solely for the purpose of being tortured and killed. Um I was just like, I don't need to see any more of this. Like, mm-hmm. this is gratuitous and pornographic, so I'm done. Yeah. I have the same exact reaction as you did, and I think a lot of people did. And what's interesting is that I came away from the movie feeling as though this was a movie that was supposed to be, it was written, it's obviously conceived by white people. Um, and I know that they, Kevin Bigelow has stated she's had input from other Obviously, Mark Bull spoke to some of the survivors of the incident, including Melvin Dismukes, who was the, uh, I guess he was sort of a guard who happened to, he was a black guard who was played by John Boyega in the movie, uh, who happened to be there that night. And it's disputed what happened, how he took part in all of that. He also spoke with Larry Reed, who was played by Algie Smith in the movie. And he's the kind of the lead singer of a, um, of a wannabe Motown group. And they have that sort of input. And also from, she's also name-checked Henry Louis Gates and Michael Eric Dyson. But I came away from the movie thinking, this was meant for white people. (laughs) Not, like, and, and white people who, her intent, she said, was to sort of start a conversation because that's what we're always doing is starting a conversation. Uh, Starting a conversation about police brutality and it seems like she wanted to like evoke empathy from the viewer. Now, there are lots of black people, I think, who don't need to see this movie because we've seen this happen either in our own personal experiences or just having to watch the deaths of famous, I, I say famous in a, in a cynical way, famous black men dying uh, on screen and on, on in video. 
uh, and so I felt like the the putting the the act of putting people in putting people in their shoes just felt so not for I, I would not recommend it for anyone, but I would especially not recommend it for anyone who is a person of color. And that was my takeaway. So I've heard, you know, quite a few people say that this is a movie primarily for white people and, and give that exact same explanation. But I, I got to confess, I don't really understand that point because it's not just on a structural level of the film. It's not as if any of the people we encounter suffering anything. Um, it's not as if we see them as people with interior lives and, and interiority, right? They... The uh, Larry, for example, gets basically a couple lines of dialogue, letting you letting us know that he he's a singer. Uh, he's a good good singer. He really wants to be famous. Um, he has a girlfriend, and uh, he's desperately trying to get laid. Right. So we get like some really basic characterization, and then he's tortured for forty five minutes. And the same goes for the other characters. Um, Anthony Mackie's character doesn't even really get that. Uh, he's just kind of like unceremoniously beaten half to death. And so if if the goal is to put white audiences in the shoes of these characters, it doesn't really do that at all. Um, and if, if the idea is to sort of make white audiences recoil at horror at what uh, uh, the white police officers are doing, it, it, it accomplishes that, but it also very much distances those white audiences from those police officers. I... I, I struggle to imagine the person of goodwill who could imagine themselves in the shoes of any of the officers or any of the National Guardsmen who turn a blind eye um, in that movie. It's, you know, if you were looking to create empathy and try to get white audiences or white people to understand and to empathize, um, it was a failure. I mean, the, the I'm, in my mind, I'm comparing it to basically the whole of do the right thing which does that successfully <laughs> and it does that by yeah. basically being a movie about um uh, black life uh that's interrupted by police violence um it right. gets the audience to to sort of really dive into the humanity of these people and so when everything unravels you feel it viscerally uh, but that doesn't ha- happen here i'm i'm like uh, i did not like this movie. Um, one thing I will that has stuck with me since last night is in the in the one of the opening sequences where we meet the police officers. Who I should say the central police officer's name I don't remember who and whose actor the actor who plays him I don't recall. Will Poulter and the character's name is Kraus. So so Kraus is actually the only character who seems to have any kind of like inner life, um, which is interesting. Or any kind of character arc, but in the first scene involving him, you see him basically run down um, and mortally wound uh, a, a black person who had been, you know, taking gro- stealing groceries from a grocery store. Uh. And um, that, that that black character is mortally wounded. We don't know his name or anything. Uh, he runs away. He crawls under a car. Um, an old woman comes to see what what's wrong. And we watch basically him die, and then it cuts. And that's it. We don't know anything more about that person. That person existed solely for us to watch him get killed. Um, and that that treatment of black characters in the movie is, like, routine. And I find it very, very disturbing. And this is, 
you know, there are other things I find disturbing about it too, like how uh, if if the black black people in the movie, if they're not being like unceremoniously like tortured and murdered, they're just part of an undifferentiated mass of like anger, um, which right. is like weird for a movie that's supposed to be you know nominally committed to uh, uh, black people as people. So sorry, I can go on like this for a long time because <laughs> I just I found this like. A, tra- a travesty of a movie. Yeah. I mean, to your point about this being for white people, I, I actually agree with your rebuttal. Um, and I, I think, I do think that for me, it is, that is what Catherine Bigelow, that was their intention. And they don't, they clearly don't succeed in that. And other people have made this, have made this point. But I think that it, it, the weird part about it is that the characters are also passive. There is no activism being shown. The they they put on this weird, like uh, not a coda, but like weird pr- prologue at the beginning that seems sort of tacked on, where it's they have you know this Jacob Lawrence like artwork happening while they're quickly explaining, attempting to explain how the the protests were you know born out of years and decades of of frustrations with inequalities and inequities of of. Detroit and the black people of Detroit. And that's like the closest I think they come to like admitting that there was a reason behind the reason why the protest really started. It wasn't just someone decided to throw something through a window and then that's how everyone just got riled up. You walked out of the end of it, Janelle, but uh, actually, well, you didn't walk out of the end. You walked out because there's still like a good 30 to 40 minutes left of the movie uh, after the, the last person in the film dies because who knows why um and so the algie smith character the lead singer larry reed he um he gets a little bit more of an arc like you see him he's unable to um he can't rejoin the band afterwards he's so shaken up by it uh so he and this is all pretty much based in reality of what happened to the real larry reed and that he uh decided not to join the group or, or decided to leave the group and then went on to sing in a gospel choir. And then they fly really quickly through like this courtroom drama that like basically compacts like years of courtroom drama that occurred in real life into like one sort of courtroom saga. It's just a movie that also obviously clearly doesn't have a, a focus. It has a focus for 40 minutes, uh, which is that torture. But then at the beginning, it's all about the riots. And at the end, it's about like the courtroom it's just kind of all over the place. And I think that's a lot of where it fails. Now I want to talk a bit about the Melvin Dismeek's character, John Boyega's character, because I feel like he is sort of the poster child for the many things that this movie gets wrong, which is based on, and again, all of these accounts have been disputed and a lot of it is fuzzy. People have different memories. People have lied. Um, really this movie was put together based on as much, you know, research, but also creative license as possible. But the thing that struck me and I, you know, I, I wrote about this in my piece for Slate in which I discussed, uh, what was sort of fact and fiction between real life and the movie is that Melvin Dismukes in real life was accused by at least two of the victims who survived the, the night of participating in the beatings that occurred. And in this movie, Melvin Dismukes, John Boyega's character, is just as, he's not 
he's pretty passive in that he he can't really do anything. He's in the hotel while everything is happening, and like many of the other people there, he's like doesn't he doesn't do anything. Although he does at one point attempt to take one of the men uh, upstairs to help them find the gun that these cops are like saying they want to find, and he says like I want to help you get help get you through the night. But it just rubs me the wrong way the fact that. And maybe it would have been disastrous to have Catherine Bigel and Mark Bull attempt to make this character a little bit more uh, fleshed out and to question his involvement. But the fact that he doesn't do anything and is, like, painted as sort of this helpless character when in real life he was accused of doing, participating, uh, like, I feel like that was missing a whole other layer of complexity and complicity that could have been further explored. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think it sort of, as you said, illustrates one of the central problems with this movie, which is that it just, I don't think it had a vision of black personhood. So it's not just that our victims have no interiority, but that John Boyega's character, who is supposed to be in the film's portrayal, some sort of hero, doesn't really have it either. Uh, We don't really know why we don't really know. We don't know anything about his motivation. We don't know anything about why he's doing what he's doing. We get no sense of how he feels to be basically law enforcement at this period. I mean, there's nothing. There's nothing there. Um, he's just kind of. Uh, a, he's a chess piece. He's there to make certain things in the plot happen, and when he's not needed for the plot, he is sort of moved aside. I mean, it's just it's really striking to me that Bigelow and her team. Um, have made this movie that has uh, that has a lot of black characters, but like no actual black people. If that makes any sense. Yes, yes, it makes a lot of sense. There, there's a lot more we could say. One thing I do want to sort of wrap this up with is the question that we've been asking ourselves a lot this summer. It's been framed as like who's allowed to tell these stories, and I think there have been good arguments made about it. Dana Stevens, our colleague, has written a really smart piece uh, about Force Late about uh, this very question. But I think of it more as like when these stories are told, how how are they supposed to be told uh, by the people who might not be a part of those communities or a part of those demographics? Uh, we had an episode earlier this summer where we discussed um, Sofia Coppola and The Beguiled and her Civil War set uh, thriller, which featured no, not a single black person in sight and explains it away at the beginning of the movie as saying that all the slaves have run away. And she came under fire for that by saying, you know, I felt like I couldn't tell the story that like I would wade into some tricky waters there and I didn't want to do it. Uh, And, you know, some people have argued, well, maybe that's for the best. I think, you know, I, you can't make a civil war movie and not have a black person on screen. It it just doesn't make sense. And I also think that's just a cop out. I want white directors to wrestle with these things, even if it does come out like Detroit. (laughs) Um, That being said, I sitting through Detroit was one of the most torturous things. I've, I've said it before like 12 Years a Slave looks like a walk in the park compared to this movie just because the torture is unrelenting. It's basically like watching Patsy get whipped for 45 minutes straight as opposed to just two minutes out of a 120-minute movie. 
So I guess my question I would pose to you is, aside from it not being Catherine Bigelow or Mark Bowl telling the story, what what would have been a better choice in your mind of how to make this movie? Uh, that's um, that's an interesting question. So one of my one of my sort of like problems with the movie on level on the technical level is that there's never a sense even even before we get to the Algiers motel um there's this movie has like a teleology if that makes any sense that like the scene where they're when they're in the theater and um, about to perform for, for for before the motown executives even that scene which i think is supposed to be lighthearted is shot and lighted and scored in such a way as to imply um the the Algiers motel sequence if part of the experience of police violence and police brutality is the randomness of it all um and and the arbitrariness of it all i would actually try to translate that to film um and try to communicate to viewers that um these are ordinary people caught up in an arbitrary and brutal system um which I think is possible to do. Like, again, do the right thing. I feel like it's a model for this. Yeah. I, I agree with do the right thing. The problem is, is that that movie, in my eyes, is so perfect that anyone who's tried to copy it has, has always failed. Um, I think personally, what I would have done was something similar in that I would have made the first part much more about their lives. I think, though, I I wouldn't even really have... I mean, flashback is so overdone, but I feel like this could have been much more powerful had it been, we hear, we see what they were like before, and then the bulk of the movie is about what the people who lived through that night had to deal with afterwards. And, you know, we can learn about the incident from the various perspectives through flashback, uh, but then we see, we see more of Larry Reed having to struggle and deal with, like, the PTSD that came from that, that experience. We see Anthony Mackey's character. We see the way in which Melvin Dismukes was labeled. Uh, I mean, even before this, I think he said he had been called an Uncle Tom just because he, you know, was a guard and he was he wasn't quite law enforcement, but he was, you know, in a position of authority in a way that a lot of the black people around him were not. And, you know, just I'm just tired of seeing the suffering. And I think even in our own media coverage, so often we see the suffering, but then like we don't often go back and revisit the people who are left who are still dealing with these issues. Every once in a while you might get a profile, you know, about, you know, Michael Brown's mother or something, but like what about the people who are like also affected after the fact? Like how that lingers. And to me that would have been much more powerful a statement about the 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 way in which police brutality and racism more generally systematically really infects and and poisons people's lives. Uh, so I feel like just less, so much less of that torture and so much more of the, the lingering effects would have been much more effective. Uh, and, and I think that says a lot about what they chose to focus on uh, as a subject matter, which was not that. I, I agree with that. Well, I think both Jamal and I are not necessarily recommending this movie. It's playing in theaters now. If you do want to watch it, I would say maybe wait until it's kind of like streaming and you can kind of pause it and not have to sit through it uh, interminably. But yeah, just 
those are our thoughts on Detroit. Thank you so much, Jamal, for joining us again. And hopefully next time we can talk about something a little happier. Yeah. Thank you for having me. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Up next, Aisha's interview with Janixa Bravo about her new movie, Lemon. The indie dramedy stars Brett Gilman, her frequent collaborator and partner, as well as Michael Sarah, Judy Greer, and one of my all-time favorites, Nia Long. The film is a bit difficult to describe. As a movie, it's bizarre in many ways and also unsettling, but essentially it's about a man who descends into despair and emotional instability when his living girlfriend decides to end the relationship. This conversation with Janixa had her discussing everything from her intent behind the film, her defiance of expectations people have of her as a black female filmmaker, and directing that great episode of Atlanta, Juneteenth. Well, it is a pleasure to have Janixa Bravo on today to talk to me about your movie, Lemon. Thanks for having me. Welcome. Uh, so we actually, we were just chatting. Listeners didn't hear it, but like we were just talking about how we actually met once before at South by Southwest earlier this year. And I caught the movie first there. Um, and I saw you afterwards and we chat a little bit. And I don't know if I told you this then, but I can say with confidence now that I have seen the movie twice and I... St- Still am like, what just happened? Oh, that's that's great. <laughs> like I, I think that's the best takeaway. Yeah, I, I I don't I still it's one of the weirdest and I mean I don't mean this in like a negative pejorative way. Like it's one of the weirdest movies I've seen in a very long time. And I can't wrap my head around it. And as an artist, like I don't expect like people directors and filmmakers to like explain everything but what i'd like to <laughs> but know but you'd like a little bit of explanation well yeah well i would love to to get a little bit of like where did these the story and these characters originate for you in like your mind i'm i'm happy to discuss um i think um and and to sort of answer the is it, the the word weird I don't mind the word weird out of the right person right <laughs> yeah. like sometimes people say weird and they mean it as um, in a diminutive fashion. Mm -hmm. And then, I mean, I use that word all the time, but to me it's like imbued with positivity and Mm -hmm. like weird feels like exciting and curious and is something that makes me inquisitive. Uh, And as you can imagine, our film has been referred to as weird a lot. And there's multiple camps of weird of like the... Some writers, when they write about it as weird, I'm like, I know where it's coming from because it's next to like sexy words. Mm -hmm. And then there's weird that is next to words that are like bummers. Um, (laughs) So there's that. But where it came from, uh, we I wrote the movie with my partner, Brett Gelman, Mm -hmm. and we wrote the film. And he also stars in the film. And he also stars in the film. Yes, we wrote the movie. Five and a half years ago, the first draft of it, and it was written at South by Southwest, actually. Um, I had met these women who work at Sundance. They work in the writing lab. I met them at a party. 
on a dance floor. They'd seen my first short film, which is called Eat, mm-hmm. which Brett is in, and also this actress, Catherine Waterston. Yeah. And they really liked it and were sort of curious if I had another film uh, or a feature that I was working on. And I lied and said yes, because... If I've learned anything from L.A. is that you can make up your own narrative and people are like, that's great. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, lie. Also, my best friend who is a filmmaker uh, was like, just say yes to everything. Like, don't be don't tell them how you feel. Don't tell them you're like not okay. Don't like just say yes and like pretend like everything's fine. I was Mm -hmm. like, got it. okay." it's like improv. Yeah. I went to theater school. I can I know how to pretend. So (laughs) they asked if I had a feature. I said that I did. And I didn't realize that these women had worked at Sundance in that moment. And had I, I would not have said so because I would have assumed they were asking me for something. <laughs> and mm-hmm. So I lied. And then at the end of the night, they handed me a business card, one of them, and said, uh, hey, we're still considering scripts for our summer lab. I'd love to read that movie. And I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, what's, the, like, what's the timeline on this? Like, when, when do you need that by? Yeah. And she's like, you know, as soon as tomorrow. And I was like, but like, if I had more days, what would the most amount of days I could have? <laughs> and um, I was like, because I haven't revisited it in a while. So like, what's the most amount of days? Mm-hmm. And she said, you know, five, five days. How about five days? And I was like, great. And whatever day of the week it was, it was like a, this will be, it was like near the weekend. So I was like, oh, that's perfect. Gives me enough time to reread and make notes and changes before I send it over. So cut to the party's over. I'm walking home and, and I've got this like card from these ladies at Sundance. I'm like, oh my God, I've wanted this for so long. And like, here I am. It feels like I'm arriving at this thing and I don't even have all the tools to get there. And so to Brett, I told him about the women that I met and he's like, he remembered them. He talked to them. And I was like, I lied to them. He's like, okay, about the script that we don't have. And he was like, we? I was like, yeah, yeah, we's underlined because I did say that we were working on it together. And he's like, oh my God, (laughs) like that's so fucked up. Can I say that? Can I say word, oh, bad words? Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Can I say bad words? Oh, all the time. <laughs> all the time. Um, and so I, so we ended up writing it together. And we wrote it in five days. We sent the draft along, and it was terrible. So um, as, as any first draft is, a little bit wonky. But this was, like, trash. And... Um, <laughs> But the 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 genesis for it or or the sort of like there are many, many seeds, but the, the biggest I would say the two things that kind of came together were I found I'd gone to theater school to be a director. And at this point, I was 30 and I wasn't directing. I was working as a stylist and I found uh, myself really frustrated mm-hmm. and I thought I'm going to wake up somewhere down the line and not really know how I got here in my life and that not everybody gets to do the thing that they want to do right like not everybody gets to arrive at or realize their dreams and maybe I'm one of those people and and I don't know it and is that is that what my sort of uh is that my line that Mm -hmm. I'm gonna walk um and and for both Brett and I we'd had this kind of feeling of frustration of all everyone in our life is passing us by and we're getting left behind and that feeling (laughs) you you know that juicy sexy feeling <laughs> We've uh, all been there, yeah. And at that time, because I was 30 and he was 35, uh, there was also the, it seemed like people were starting to have kids. 
they were starting to get married. He had friends who were like buying houses, and we were like, "What?" I have friends <laughs> I was, buying houses. Yeah, I'm just weird. like, I'm supposed to buy a house? Like, I haven't even like I I'm like behind on so many things. Like, <laughs> and it was just really stressful. It's like we were entering these. There are these massive markers you're supposed to check off, and we were not anywhere near checking them off. And it was just like. Oh my goodness, we're we're impotent and we don't know it. Aww, um, yeah. So that was kind of the biggest seed, this fear of it. And I think for both of us, I I really felt, and and I think Brett felt this way too, that if we wrote it all down, uh, we were going to kind of like exorcise it, sort of like witch magic, right? You write it all down, you light it on fire, and then it won't happen. I think that's what we kind of felt in that moment. And so there was that. And then the other thing was, I wanted to be working in comedy. And I did not feel there was a space for me. You know, comedy seems to exist in two camps. I'm going to apologize now. All of my answers are 35 years long. Um, (laughs) There seems to be two camps of comedy. Um, There's black comedy, I guess. And then there's white comedy, I guess. How would you define Um, that? And that's purely that black comedy has black people in it, right? And then, like, white comedy, it seems to be everything else. And I don't think anyone's calling it that. Mm -hmm. But that's what I felt I had noticed. And... And the work that I was writing, which was a little bit unusual, uh, even for by white standards, I guess. Um, and it didn't seem to have a home. I just felt like there wasn't a home for me in what seemed to be the two camps of like what I was noticing in humor. And so I found that when I was watching work made by my peers, there also seemed to be this uh, – this common theme or there seemed to be this like new genre almost of comedy of like this like white dude in his mid to late thirties who was, uh, you know, bad at everything. The but Apatow. Had, yeah. And the Mumblecore. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and sometimes they were sort of interchangeable and it's not meant to be an assault, you mm-hmm. know, on, it's not, Lemon is not an assault on that space, but it is having a conversation with this form, this mm. kind of, white male who is floundering and there's just something about those guys in those movies that everything works out for right and everyone's just like I don't know there's just something about him and you're like (laughs) really because I'm watching him and he should go I think he should go he's gotta go (laughs) I am so glad you're saying this because now this is all kind of clicking together you're like oh so that's what Lemon is (laughs) yeah because so all right, that's what it is yeah now you see I do I totally see it and it, what, it's essentially white guy fail is the other title for Lemon. <laughs> it is. So Isaac essentially, or Brett's character, Isaac, like I kept watching him and really watching everyone in this movie for the most part, except for Nia Long's character. And I want to get back to Nia Long because I love Nia Long. But like, we'll talk about that shortly. But everyone in this movie, or at least the men, were all kind of like terrible. The worst. There was no redeeming quality. And, and that, like I thought, like, I was just like, why, why is, why is this man doing all of these terrible things? <laughs> um, specifically, there, like, it, it, there's this this bubbling violence underneath that I don't think we usually see in these movies. Of like, I mean, some, uh, I guess maybe Anchorman is like a sort of a, 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 a more like crazy version of that there's a lot of violence in that movie um and rage but with this movie like the violence is very intense and very scary there's a moment where isaac tells his estranged i guess girlfriend or Mm -hmm. like she doesn't want to be with him anymore but he he keeps clinging to her um who's played by judy greer who's amazing and he's like you know like i could kill you right now he says something like that do you know how many men have killed their girlfriends and wives millions I could have done better than you. I settled because 
because I didn't think that anyone else would want me. I thought I chose you because I felt sorry for you, but really, I felt sorry for myself. <sighs> I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. I don't want you to leave me, please don't. I deserve to be with a man who wants me. And then it just ha- like you just you just let it be. Yeah. And, and and I'm just talk a little bit more about it. <laughs> talk about violence. <laughs> well, I just I just get like this white male vi- like this undercurrent of white male anger and violence. Well, again to sort of speak to that genre, well, I can't remember what it was that I had seen when I was we were sort of piecing together the idea. And and perhaps my not remembering is also that these people are people I know who will be like, "Thanks." Janixa. Um, but there seemed to be a kind of interchangeable quality, right? And and the when I was looking at that form of the fla- floundering, fumbling white male, the three places that he seemed to exist in was in the eyes of his family, his relationship to love, and his relationship to career. And so the film is divided into these three. The first... A third of the movie is career with a little bit of love. Mm -hmm. And then the second part of the film is all family. And then and it's also to see a little bit of like where your trauma comes from. And then the third is is back to is back to full love. It's sort Mm -hmm. of the full evolution of that space. And the idea is I feel in those movies is these guys kind of fail at all of them, but somehow everything works out. And I thought, well, what if you just failed at all three? Because that (laughs) is the reality of the kind of person you presented me with. Right. And that's all. Also, like how I'm you're also you're presenting a a picture of white mediocrity and white privilege that prevails. Mm -hmm. But the whole premise of that space is that it wouldn't. Right. Right. Like and so I was like, but I I can't see it that way. That's not how I see it. And I would never I think it'd be hard to write women and uh, people of color as characters like these that uh, the takeaway was like, I don't know, there's just something about him. I don't think you get that. No. Um, yeah. I mean, I remember, and this this film is not exactly that, but I, I and I can't recall the name of the movie, but there was a movie with Charlize Theron where she was, I think, sort of an unlikable oh, type. Um, I just watched it. Was it Young Adult? Yeah, and I think people had a hard time with that film because yeah. there was something sort of like ugly about her. I really liked that film. I did too. I, yeah. I, I thought it was great. I felt... It was having a conversation that I thought was really interesting. And you don't get to see women or people of color in these spaces and where the audience will accept them at the end. And so I I think both Brett and I found that work to be like kind of hostile. I mean, I found it to be an assault on me Mm -hmm. and how I process and how I lived in the world. And I was like – Anthropologically, that's not my narrative, right. and um, and so that's my my sort of offering to that space. Were I to make a film in this in this genre, that this is how I see that world unfolding. And I think there is a kind of unspoken rage and violence and ineptitude um, that is the volume isn't all the way turned up on. So they end up being like the. I don't know. There's something about him. Right. And I was like, I don't know. There is something about him. He's not well. He should be locked up. I mean, that was the thing with Isaac's character. And then we also have um, in Eat, Brett Gelman's character again, uh, who I don't remember if he's named or not. But August is his name. August. Yeah. Okay. And for listeners, um, Eat, the basic premise is that Catherine Waterston's character is locked out of her apartment and her neighbor, who is played by Brett Gellman. Uh, he 
sort of helps her or he like lets her in to call someone to get her keys and then it turns into this crazy it, it's <laughs> he weird. strangles her <laughs> he, he strangles her spoiler alert he strangles her um and then also michael sarah's character because mike you've cast michael sarah a couple of times now he was yeah. also in the short film um Benny Go Boom. Gregory Go Boom. Gregory Go Boom. <laughs> I like Benny Go Benny Boom. Benny Go Boom. <laughs> Who's Benny? So, where, where he is. I don't know. <laughs> uh, and in that, it, uh, he's he's also kind of a terrible person. He, he's... Um, he has a medical problem that confines him to a wheelchair. Wheelchair, but we—it's hard to be sympathetic for for him because he also says really mean things to women and 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 is also kind of racist. And then at the end, like spoiler alert, douses himself with gasoline <laughs> uh, and goes boom. Uh, and that was the, that was the thing that I found really fascinating is that there, there was like. I could see each of these men turning into the men that we see committing these like mass shootings, um, these actual terrorist attacks that happen by white men in America. And like that undercurrent, like to me, now that you say that, it makes it makes sense to me. Like all these characters in these like Apatow movies and all these mumblecore, like they are actually unstable and and they need to get their white maleness reined in and, and no one does. Yeah, I mean, there seems to be a, um, I don't know if it's like, maybe sickness is too harsh, but um, I I liken it to, and, and I recall hearing this about, I have a dog, I have a, a small dog, and when I rescued my dog, um, I had been told by many people who'd had rescue dogs or fancy dogs, like, the, the, the people, when you have a dog, and I imagine when you have a child, it's very similar, there's like lots of like advice that is uninvited, mm-hmm. and uh, and the main thing that I got, the through line main sort of takeaway was like, your dog needs to be socialized, and a socialized dog is a dog that like goes to dog parks and hang out, hangs out with other dogs and right. goes on hikes and hangs out with other dogs and like just knows is really good at hanging out with other dogs. Ultimately, my dog is kind of a cunt. Um, I love her <laughs> deeply. She's she's my favorite. She's the best. But she's a she's just like an asshole. Aww. She likes people. She doesn't really like my, dogs. My puppy is the same way. She, she likes people. We take her to the she's dog park. Dog. She doesn't do anything. No, she would just she'd go to the dog park and she'd stand next to me and stare at me like, when are we leaving? This is not great. This and is I, just like my dog. And you I know, know, truth be told, is I like her prefer dog parks. To to people parks. So I like fully understand. And so the thing, this idea of being socialized, like being good at being like a full person, full dog, whatever that is, I think these men are not socialized. I think they don't actually, they weren't born with it, actually. Mm-hmm. That thing that he just has, he doesn't actually have it. It's the 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 maker, the maker, the viewer, the writer has imbued him with something that he actually doesn't have. Mm-hmm. Because I am watching and going, but I don't understand. He would never be allowed anywhere in my life at all. Next to me, nowhere. Can't. But somehow, and it's because they, they're seeing themselves in it, right? Like there's, you see yourself in the work and then you want to take care of yourself and you want to create a narrative where you get to be accepted. We're getting really deep here. Well, that's what we like to do. And I also wanted to figure out what the fuck was going on with this movie. So I'm glad we are. Um, no, so you, you mentioned that like these characters these types of characters that are usually written like they would never be in your life like that's not realistic I mean they're def- they, they are they're well they, they are but you wouldn't <laughs> want that like you wouldn't react to them in the way that people in those other movies do react to him yeah Nia Long's character um, she you know he pursues her in the most awkward of and kind of creepy of ways um, and we even get a scene of him like imagine like masturbating to the idea of her what 
Can you talk about her character and how she sort of fits into this world? Because she does, for even though he says very awkward things about black people <laughs> and and it's just really like he you can tell he's off like she still like invites him to her family's barbecue and and invites him to have dinner with her son and why good question uh there's two parts to that and i that was the the hardest thing to write or the hardest thing to arrive at and rationalize for myself and for Brett. We both were like, we know this has to happen because this is this conversation we want to have with this kind of character in this movie. You know, like in the the girl, the girlfriend that stays or or the there's the one that leaves and then there's the one that stays and you're like, why would she stay? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um and I feel generally like not satisfied by like the answers there in if there are answers in those in those films. Yeah, there might uh, not be. Yeah, there I guess there aren't. It's kind of like the onus is on you, right? It's um, more about the, I guess, the feeling or like the emotion of like what what that's trying to get at. Uh, totally. And yeah. so I think for us, like, it was when, and I should engage in this sort of how we talked to Nia about it too, because it was like a three way conversation in the in the writing of it. We knew that it just had to happen, and and in the the shooting of it and the the presentation of it, I. I always said I was like, this is the part of the movie the audience will be like, no. And I know it. I know it. They'll be like, no, there's just no way that woman wouldn't do that. And I was like, and I totally get that. And I understand that. And and to sort of bring up because you brought up Eat before, it's the same. That woman is similar to Catherine's character, mm-hmm. which is like she knows she shouldn't. Go, she like walks in and she's like, I should go. But then she keeps staying. And there is this. Um, what's her name? Is it Judy Smith? Is Judy Smith who Scandal is based on? Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay, yeah. The, cool. the high power. Yeah. Fixer. Yeah. Like exactly. The yeah. like real life fixer. And um. And I remember around the time when we were writing her, we or maybe Brett had and I hadn't had listened to this like interview with Judy Smith, and she talked a lot about like the kinds of uh, she'd worked with a lot of people who'd been abducted or raped, and most of the women she said who had been abducted or raped had had said almost the same thing, which was that they would. The, the man or person or persons that did this to them, when they encountered them on the street, they felt their body told them like something was wrong and that and that they told their brain that that, that was crazy. Mm. They, they talked themselves out of it. And so I was really fascinated by that, like that little thing, because I know that I have that like for sure. I definitely mm. am like in situations with like men where I'm like, I don't know how I got here. And I'm like talking to myself about I'm still in it. I'm still in it. Like there is this one part of your brain that is like this. Everything about this is wrong, which is in that first date that they have at the at the Chinese restaurant. She's like, I should leave. I should leave. And she says it a few times where she's like, got to go. Can't be here. Don't want to be here. Yeah. And and then he asked to see her again and she's like, oh, can't, can't do that. Oh, OK. Yeah. OK. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she's like, fuck, I'm here. First of all, I love the fact that Nia Long had like a nice set of, sort of juicy part. I feel like she's very under underused. I a million Hollywood. percent agree. <sighs> was, she did you... said I've never been in a movie like this. No, that, that, that was the other thing is that like. And that's she's... our camp of, by the way, white comedy, black comedy. Yes, like, exactly. To go back to that, like Nia. And I, when we met, which is almost about a year ago that we sat down to talk about Lemon, um, we were discussing these sort of like 
there are also multiple camps of comedy, obviously. Right. But in, in thinking in umbrella terms that like black comedy um, primarily has black actors in it and then white comedy does not have black actors in it. Right. And, that, and she had said to me just blatantly, she's like, I've never been asked to do a white comedy. And I started laughing because I was like, oh, do I work in white comedy? And she was like, yes, I've seen all of your movies. And I was like, okay, cool. <laughs> and then she went on to ex- elaborate on the like, no, I just it's like expressive and it's unusual and it's like, a, you know, it's absurd and a little experimental. And like, I don't I don't get invited to do stuff that's left of center, really. And that's the thing is left of center is so often associated with like the mumblecore crowd, which is very white, uh, you know, the Duplass brothers, um, Apatow on the the higher level or the more mainstream level, even like Wes Anderson, like the quirky. And can you talk a bit about what that is like for you as a black female filmmaker who is making quote unquote left of center movies? Like what, like, do you, I'm sure you felt sort of pressure or expectations to make movies that are star just black people or mostly black people and that fit that white comedy, black comedy uh, realm. And then, like, how is that received, like, in reviews? Like, because I think that if people went into this movie not knowing who you are, I would assume, I would assume myself that... That it was you, a white dude. Yeah, it was a white dude. Or maybe Which a white I think woman. is cool. Yeah. Like, I mean, I like, I mean, I'm not, it's cool that you think I'm a white dude. Uh, <laughs> you think I'm a white dude? Oh, it's all working. Yes, my plan. Uh, no, I, I think that that's cool that, um, meaning, like, I have, in my direction, I guess, I've always kind of, like, wanted to sort of, like, not be engendered or not be, um, like, raced and meaning, like, that it is very much me. And I think that the film feels, like, once you know that I am the person who made it, I think a lot of things do click in where you're Mm -hmm. like, that's why all there's all this weird race stuff. Like, what feels like strange, uncomfortable race stuff is, like, clearly, it's like, oh, it's a black person made this yes um i mean for and and to go to that like there's a scene that i that was super important to me in the movie and i and if i had time to if we could have reshot it i would have like extended it a little bit longer but there is um brett's sister in the film sherry appleby Mm -hmm. has a an adopted black son and the woman that takes care of him or the woman that works for her is a latina woman and there is this conversation about race and sort of like blacks and Jews um, at the dinner table. And and it ends with like and Shiri, who is defending her son's blackness, it that scene ends with her like sending like chewing her maid away to like go get her something. Yeah. And that the, the complication of like those three pieces like was so important to me where I was like the, that kind of I think the nuance of that um, that's not a white person just can't direct that. Yeah, you can't direct the. I, I just and maybe I'm wrong, but I, at least for me, I feel like that's where I see myself most is uh, being of color, also being Jewish, also being Latin. I was like, this is like my scene where like all of my groups come together. Mm-hmm. And then as far as the like the the obligation of like who you're working with, uh, I made my first short film six years ago, and that was Eat and. Brett is my partner, my romantic partner, and he was an actor that was easy for me. It was like, you're right there, so you'll be in it. (laughs) Uh, You're my boyfriend, now husband. Uh, And then Catherine Waterston, also friend from school. And we just talked about working together. And so I just cast both of them. And there was also this, of course, in the back of my head, I'm like, they both work a lot. 
and there are not like known names at this point and film fe- I can get into like a nice film festival if like there's like names that you kind of know yeah. I mean I like understood that that's how the business worked at that point yeah and so I cast both of them and um and I and I bring up this film again too because like it was at that first festival I got into South by I shot it in like September October of the year like five months before the festival I submitted it it got in and I went to South by with it, and it was at my first or second Q&A that this black woman asked why there were no black people in the movie. She was like, when you said that you directed Eat, I like had this kind of moment on my seat of like, oh, interesting. And then she's like, and I want to know, you know, why why didn't you cast black actors? And then she she said more, and it was about like, you know, don't you think it's your obligation? Um, and I felt obviously very cornered and um, mm-hmm. and I got a little bit defensive, uh, but I answered it and it has stayed with me ever since. Like I think about it all the time. I mean, it kind of like shook me a little bit. Um, and it was because I don't know if this is a product of theater school. It's not that I had not considered race. Obviously, I had considered race. But in that space, in theater school, I was casting the people that were next to me. And I mean, I went to NYU. My studio was predominantly white. Yep. My friends were predominantly white. Those were the people that I was working with. My set designer, costume designer, production designer. I mean, everybody was white, you know. Um, and I had not really realized it. Honestly, when she asked me that, I started to kind of do this like self-examination of like, oh, my God. What you said about like the everyone around you was white – that's the same thing that a lot of, you know, executives say about like, oh, well, we cast like, you know, these are the people who are available to us. These are the people who are coming through our casting agencies, which in turn puts the onus on the casting agencies, which in turn puts the onus on, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's like a chain of reactions. Um, but I think the difference is, is that it's like it's tough because as a black person, do you have an obligation I mean, maybe, but at the same time, when you're when you are just starting out, it'd be one thing it's if really this hard was like when you're just starting. Out. Right, it's one thing if it's like Spike. Not that Spike Lee has ever not done this, but like it's well, he did Twenty Fifth Hour, which was mostly white people. But like, it's not like it's someone who has stature, and you are not you are not there yet. You're, no, and so when you say I that, want it it's to be honest. recognized. Yeah. Right, exactly. And but I, it's yeah. hard to say that. You know, it's it hard is. to be like. Like, real talk, like, I'm casting white people so that white people can hire me. Like, I mean, but can I really say that? I I said that to a black filmmaker recently, and she took that really, she was really pissed off at me, and I was like, oh, shit. I could feel that she was disappointed in me, and I was like, I'm just being honest, like, I want to be doing this, like, for my life. Mm -hmm. And I, I found that when I talked about myself as a director, people took me less seriously. When I had work that existed and it featured relatively known or known white actors, I be like people saw me differently. They just did. And that that is like if I'm being honest, that is the reality. Mm-hmm. I it's not that the work would have been I think of I wonder, I do wonder like would the work have still would that film have gotten into South by? I don't know. You you did do an episode of Atlanta. You directed an episode of Atlanta for Juneteenth, which was just which was one of yesterday. My... Maybe we don't want to date the show, but well, yes. <laughs> at, at the time of this recording, it, it was yesterday. Um, that was actually probably one of my favorite episodes, and I'm not just saying that because you're here. I've been saying that forever. Oh, um, but that to me shows 
like I think Atlanta is, is a show that has shown people other than those of us who already knew that black people can do quote unquote weird stuff um, that black people can do weird stuff. And that show is very it, it has so many elements of what we usually associate with someone like Louis C.K. or I don't know, other Quirky, quirky, quirky white dudes. Um, Like really quickly, can you talk about like what was your favorite scene of that of that episode to to direct? Oh man, I think probably my favorite was anytime I got to work with Donald and Zazie, that was fantastic. Yeah, and I also really liked um, the actor whose name I think is Rick in the piece. Um, the the couple. Cassandra and Rick were superb. Um, and, like, they really just got it clicked in, like, getting to play with them in this kind of, like, inter- I'm in an interracial couple, so, like, the politics of interracial couples when, like, one of them is, like, the the white in the couple is, like, <laughs> obsessed with blackness. Like, l- I mean, I, like, l- I love, th- I've met this man before many times in my Me life. Too. Um, Me too. <laughs> and um And so I just was, yeah, those are really good. I mean, it's hard. I don't know. It's hard to pick one. They're... I like the stuff that I guess I was able to play with in absurdism the most because Mm -hmm. I am natural. My work is absurd and super theatrical. Mm -hmm. And that when I got the, when Donald and Hero gave me an opportunity to be a part of it, that they were, they were like lean in, like go you, Mm -hmm. like get like bananas. And I was like, really? There is this line uh, that Stephanie Robinson, who wrote the episode that says, um, I feel like I'm in an episode of a, of a Spike Lee directed Eyes Wide Shut. Yeah. And I like really thought about the like what that meant and kind of was like play in that space. So mm-hmm. like bring in a little bit of the like Kubrick wides, juicy, upsetting, is everybody dead? <laughs> and then bring in some of like Spike's movement. So yeah, that was it was really special. I'm so glad that I got to do that. Yeah. My final question for you is when is the last time you were watching something on TV or in, or in a movie and you felt as though you saw yourself on screen? The last time. Um, and it can be not like a literal seeing myself. Maybe it can be like emotional or oh, you want it to be literal. Oh, yeah, yeah. Whatever you felt as though you connected with it in a way in which you felt represented. Uh, I would say it was this Argentinian film. Uh, I think it's Argentinian. It's called Wild Tales. Uh, have you seen it? No. Uh, it's great. It's essentially four short films, maybe five short films, and they're anywhere from fifteen to twenty minutes. And um, without giving thing giving anything away, there's kind of like a trauma that connects the pieces, even though they're individual. They're very much individual stories. Mm-hmm. And I had been told by four or five different friends that like I need they saw the movie like it came out two or three years ago and they were mm-hmm. like you need to see this movie it's you it's you like it's you I saw it it felt like you and um and generally people say that and then you watch something and you're like oh so I feel like trash uh, <laughs> and uh, and that was a part of my hesitation was that I, I was like I like these people these are my good friends I can't watch this movie and then be like wow friendship over yeah so um and the last person to say it was actually a black girlfriend and I was like oh I got blacks telling me okay I gotta see it and so <laughs> Um, seal of approval. Yeah, seal. Of, I, I mean, white dudes. I was like, I don't know. Are you right? And then, but they were. It was like it was. It was me through and through. Um, emotionally, the palette, the design. It just felt 
very I felt like my it felt like my feelings um and it was like a little bit funny and a little bit tragic I mean even just like the opening of the movie this really horrible thing happens like within the first like eight, eight minutes and I was like oh this is for me <laughs> <laughs> um so I recommend it Wild Tales great I'll, yes. I'll have to check that out cool well, thank you so much. Thanks Janessa. for having me. Yeah, it was um, I so hope wonderful. you liked uh, my thirty-hour um, answers, and I feel like you asked a lot of things that I didn't answer. But <laughs> no, I think I think to we... future hangs. Yes, yeah, to future hangs. Exactly. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And that's a wrap. Represent is produced by me, Verilyn Williams. Aisha Harris, as y'all know, is our esteemed host. Our wonderful social media assistant is Marissa Martinelli. And our intro outro music is performed by the sweet San Francisco funk soul band, Midtown Social. Also, I want to give a huge thank you to everyone that showed love for our four-part series, Represent Rose, where I recapped the last season of The Bachelorette with crunk feminist Robin Borlon. Don't worry, there's going to be many recaps and represents future. And final thing, if you're a parent <laughs> or an involved auntie like I am, you should check out Slate's weekly podcast, Mom and Dad Are Fighting. On last week's show, a parent that was moving his family to Milwaukee called in to get advice choosing between a cheaper home or a better, a.k.a. wider, school district. And y'all should listen to that conversation. I really appreciated the way that host Carvel Wallace unpacked what that question actually gets to. Listen and subscribe by searching Mom and Dad Are Fighting wherever you get your podcasts. All right, y'all. Until next time. Peace out. <laughs>